Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us listening today and happy to have a good crew here in the room. Morning, Brian. Morning, Brad. And Philip. Hey, Brad. Bob. Good morning. And we've got Dustin back in studio with us. Morning, Brad. Happy to have you guys here. And we've got several good things we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk a little bit about vaccine efficacy, and then we're going to answer a couple listener questions, one on feeding programs and one on cow leasing. Before we get into those topics, I don't, I don't know how you guys feel about leftovers, but we had some leftovers in the fridge last night. I was kind of looking forward to bringing for lunch today. However, our son that's in college came home and he decided leftovers. he went through three different lunch. I was like, well, that's okay. I'll have the baked spaghetti for lunch tomorrow. Nope. He ate that too. And the juicy burger and everything else that we had in the fridge. So I'm going to have Pringles for lunch today. There you go. <laughs> but wanted to ask you guys, what's your favorite leftover? Oh, so I, I, honestly, I like leftover pizza. And, uh, and that may be holdover from my college days or something else. Or you never really get over your bachelorhood, you know. But yeah, cold pizza warmed up again or not, just cold. You know, I'm not sure, but I can tell you which one it's not. It's French fries. Oh. You, you heat up leftover no, French fries. You're right. They just don't, yeah. yeah. Unless you've got an air fryer. And that changes. You, that yeah, changes you gotta you gotta refry them to make them. Yeah, leftover chili. Yeah, it's a, oh. day day two is always better. So You're right. Sometimes yeah. you just make the chili and then just let it sit, and it's not really leftovers. But yeah, leftover chili. You're right. I forgot about that. I guess I don't know what my favorite is, but I do like leftover chili, and I do really like pizza, cold pizza actually. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I don't like warmed up French fries. <laughs> <at all. laughs> leftover fish is not. Leftover Left- fish is not good. Leftover fish is not good. Yeah, so I, th- I think there's lots of lots of things there as you go through the fridge. Sometimes you some of that stuff just gets put in there and then never makes it back out onto a plate. So, Dustin, we had last week where we had Brian introduce himself a little bit. And I think it's good for the listeners to learn a, a little bit more about you and kind of some of the things that you've done through your career. Yep, absolutely. We'll go back and we'll just kind of start. We'll do the, the Cliff Notes version, but we'll go back. I grew up in uh, West Central Illinois. As I tell people, out in the middle of nowhere, t- little town called Colchester. It's 15 miles from uh, another town called Industry, Illinois. Where Industry, there's a famous person. Uh, can anybody guess who that famous person from Industry, Illinois is? No. Yeah, Philip. Yep. Dustin and I grew up uh, just a few miles apart and played basketball against each other and and stuff growing up in high school. And you're still and you're still talking to each other, so that's good. And so grew up there. Actually, my wife grew up. She just lived a couple miles away from me. Uh, went to college, did undergrad in agronomy, agribusness, uh, master's, PhD in ag econ. Spent about nine years Colorado State University on faculty there, teaching research. Came back to K-State seven years ago, I guess it is, and do teach research and extension here at K-State, mostly in the livestock front. Uh, my wife and I, we have two kids. Uh, two boys. One's a freshman in high school at Rock Creek, and the other one would be a seventh grader in Rock Creek. And pretty much they're involved in lots and lots of things. So that's pretty much all we do in our spare time. Yeah. You get to go watch all kinds of sporting events because they just switch whatever sports in season. That's their favorite sport? It uh, pretty much. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty much. Excellent. Well, thanks, Dustin. One of, one of the things that, and we always appreciate as, as people send in listener questions you can send us a listener question at bci at ksu.edu or you can contact us on twitter at the underscore bci 
And we always enjoy having those. And we've got a couple of good ones. And Philip, I'm going to address this first one to you because it's really about nutrition and feeding. And he's talking about he's developing some bulls and heifers and wondered what what are some of the best feeding plans to think about? And and one of the things I think is important in the question is he said he doesn't have a large scale operation. So he's not buying truckloads of feed. He's he'd like to use some commodities. But it's a little bit different when you say, hey, I'm not going to buy a whole truckload of distiller's grains or something like that. Yeah, and one of the things he <clears throat> he talks about or mentions is that he's in an area that really doesn't have access or economical access to a lot of those common byproducts that we think about, like distillers and wheat mids, soybean holes, corn gluten feed, those kind of things that we have a lot of access, access to in uh, most of the cattle feeding parts of the country. And so... In those types of situations, you're you're looking at your homegrown feeds, basically. What can you grow locally and use? And so you've got you know forages, maybe alfalfa, grass hay. You've got corn, you know maybe maybe another grain depending on where you're at. And so you're looking at trying to mix those two things or feed those two things. The the tricky part is in that situation is protein, and because alfalfa would give you enough protein but to have enough alfalfa in the diet you're not to get enough protein you're not going to have enough energy in the diet to get the kind of gains you want on those cattle probably you're going to need more grain in there and so that becomes a, a tough balance in act balancing act there and so you've you got to have somewhere some place to get a protein supplement of some kind well and i think one of the things to think about is What's my target? So if we're talking about developing heifers and we've talked about raising replacement heifers, Bob, I know you've talked before about it matters when I start that process of growing them versus when I want them to be bred. Yeah, you know, one of our, our goals is really that they, they hit 60, 65% of their mature body weight by the time that breeding season is ready to start. And different strategies have been then talked about is how do I get them there? So if I, if I wean them at, say, 500, 500, 600 pounds, what rate of gain do they need to get? Well, a lot of times it averages out to be about a pound and a half a day. For heifers, bulls, it's going to be higher. But for heifers, about a pound and a half a day. And there's a couple strategies. You can go about a pound a day for a while and then two pounds a day later and average that out. Or you can aim for a pound and a half a day, kind of a even ration. And a lot of times that's driven by, you know, the, the base forage that's available, the timing of the year, and those types of things. So I, I don't, I guess, the, the, at the extreme, you could say, well, just gain them really slow for a while, half a pound a day, three quarters of a pound a day, and then two and a half pounds a day. And that becomes more of a challenge in more places because of the type of feeding, type of ration, the amount you're going to feed. So I, for developing heifers, you know, I, I'm aiming for that pound and a half a day gain, give or take a little bit, knowing that it doesn't have to be even all the way through, but I don't want to get too far off of that. Well, my point being, they're not gaining like cattle in a feedlot, well, that's right? You don't, have to, you, you don't have to supplement them at a level that they're gaining at that high rate of gain for a long period of time. That's a really good point. You know, our, our feedlot gains now are, you know, over three pounds a day. And so we're talking a much different type of a diet than a feedlot diet, but it's still more than just poor quality forage. Uh, they're not going to gain that kind of weight on, on even moderate quality forage. Yeah, so let me back up a little bit, thinking about that. You know, in, in a, a growing heifer that only needs to gain a pound, pound and a half a day, 
they, you probably would be able to do okay if you've got some good quality alfalfa, some grass hay, and then maybe a little corn supplement. You'd probably be able, still be able to meet her protein requirements with the alfalfa in that mix. You, but when we think about bulls, bulls are a little different. Heifer gain needs to be about 65% of her mature weight come start of breeding season. If you want that bull to breed as a yearling, he needs to be much higher than that. I mean, I'm not exactly sure on the number there, Bob, but he probably needs to be, you know, 80% or so of his mature weight. He's going to be much heavier to get him to start to, in that first breeding season. And so he needs to gain probably two, two and a half pounds a day at least to get him there by the start of that breeding season to breed as a yearling. And so that's going to require a lot more grain and in that mix so that you can get him to gain that. And that's where it becomes a problem of getting enough protein in the diet. And then also you got a lot of grain and starch in there, and, and that mix can have some negative impacts on your the forage digestibility in that ration as well. Philip, I had a question. So I've been involved in some production systems and smaller scale generally where they use some pretty unusual byproducts, potato waste, tomato waste, chocolate waste, you know. So what about kind of, what about the creative aspect of maybe some unusual supplementations? And I know you've done some research on maybe some different sources of, of byproducts. Yeah, Brian, that's a, that's a good point. So in, depending on the area and where you're at and what you, you know, get ask, access to, you know, they may be processing some human food in that area where you can get enough byproduct for a small operation. So like you said, vegetable waste is a, is a good one. You know, even local grocery stores that are have to throw out fresh produce that doesn't meet the quality standards um, for human consumption are good sources of, of nutrients that can be used. I've seen places where they, you know, they're using cold breakfast cereals and other things like that and candy bars and, you know, whatever else. And so look for those types of opportunities that would be good, cheap sources of nutrients. You got to be sure your bunks can hold milk if you're going to be doing the breakfast cereal. That's the trickiest part. <laughs> but, I, but I think the, the challenge with those and the, and the trade-off, and I'm all for that, especially in cows, the, the trade-off here with those products or those types of products is the consistency of supply. So you, you get a different mix this week or next week or last week. You, you've really got to struggle with if you've got growing animals to keep them on a consistent diet. Cows can be fine on that. They, they don't, I don't think they're all that picky. But if I want my growing animals, I do think look for some sources. And I've got a trade-off between convenience, right? So you said protein is going to be one of the things I'm lacking. Well, there are some pre-prepared protein supplements that I could purchase, but they're relatively expensive. If I buy it in a bag or a tub or however I buy it, but that may be right. If I'm raising a few, that may be the easiest and cheapest and makes it work on my operation. So I think good points there. And there's some things you can look up. I would certainly get in contact with your nutrition person or a nutritionist and plan this out. Because as Bob said on your heifers, not, not that big a gain needed on your bulls. You're going to need more. You may not be able to feed. And you probably wouldn't want to feed them together anyway, right? Well, I don't think you would. Back to the reproduction aspect. <laughs> so there's some good reasons not to. Bob, the other thing, there was a paper that came out that you were a part of, along with uh, Dr. Sarah Capick, who is at Texas A&M. And she, she has done some research here. And you've followed up on some research that you've done in the past, looking at if we think about vaccines for cattle, and I'm going to narrow it down to vaccines for respiratory disease in cattle arriving at the feed yard, 
They can be either bacterial-based, so we talk about Mannheimia and some of those pathogens, or viral-based. You did some research on how well do those bacterial vaccines work. What'd you find? Yeah, and, and not really surprising because I had done another study of 10, 15 years ago that kind of found the same thing, so we wanted to update it with some new work. But we found that vaccinating against the bacteria, so that's Mannheimia and Pasteurella, those types of pneumonia-causing bacteria, at arrival at a feed yard actually did not help prevent respiratory disease in cattle. And you know, like I said, maybe the first time I looked at that data, I was a little surprised, but I wasn't as surprised now. I think that the valid question is, well, why are these products available and, and should we use them? And a lot of times the, the process to get these vaccines approved was pretty rig rigorous. And that, but they involved what we call challenge studies. So we, we can kind of control the situation. We expose the cattle to the bacteria and, you know, after they've been vaccinated a certain number of days and those kinds of things. And we saw some nice benefits when you kind of control the situation. But when you have the real world, so weather fluctuations, more than one type of bacteria at one time, uh, other types of situations, the, the vaccines aren't really making, the, they're not the big difference. So you go back to, so what should I do for feedlot cattle arriving at a, at a feedlot? Well, kind of back to the basics of good cattle care. So a good environment, you know, control mud, control dust, have plenty of, of good fresh feed in front of them, you know, do all the kind of the cattle care things really well. And, and that's where I'd focus my time. The other question is the timing. Because one of the things that I really wish we had more studies, well, what about these same bacterial vaccines a couple of months earlier, or a month, six weeks earlier than feedlot arrival. Do they have more benefit there? And I really don't know. Uh, the logic would say probably, but, but we really don't know. So when we think about health programs for cattle, and, and we're gonna say feedlot cattle in specifics, a health program is a lot more than the vaccines. And the vaccines have a place, but a vaccine administered at a time that doesn't provide a lot of benefit doesn't provide a lot of benefit. <laughs> yeah, I want to go back to, I want to follow up on that timing, because Brian, you mentioned that too. And why, why would the timing be important, especially with our bacterial vaccines versus, say, our viral vaccines? Well, and I mean, actually with any vaccine, right? So vaccines work through the host's immune system. So a little bit different than like an antibiotic, where it's the drug that's actually working. And once it's in the animal, we start to see some effect, but with a vaccine modulating the host's immune system, and it takes time for that to do that. So the host, the, host, the, the animal, the cow is exposed, and then they develop antibodies to that, whatever virus, bacteria we're talking about, and that takes time. And we usually say, you know, it's, it's a matter of weeks, not a matter of minutes or days like it would be with an antibiotic. So the timing's really, really important. And if you think, you know, Bob's comment about the real world, why these things don't work in the real world, well, in those challenge studies, everybody's exposed at the same time. But but in a real world situation, you know, we have one or two calves that get sick and then they spread it to the pen mate and then it spreads to the pen. You know, so it's a it's a matter of days and or weeks before it before between the first and the last animal even within a pen exposed and so there's so there's the timing of the vaccine up front that's important right so we give the vaccine and it takes time for the animal to develop a response but then there's the back end too where it can start to go away the immune goes away and that's usually a matter of months but if it, if the outbreak is really delayed 
and the last animal exposed is really a long time from the vaccine, we, we may see less of an immune response there. So, Bob, you, you mentioned it's more than just the vaccines and parts of the health program. And we're talking about respiratory disease vaccines. What other parts are you thinking are important? Well, I, I really do think the environment is really important. So mud is one of our biggest health challenges. So if I'm receiving feedlot cattle, I want basically as good a housing environment as possible. Minimal or controlled amount of mixing with other cattle. So again, we like to have you know, a, a pen of cattle arrive in a short period of time and not continually adding cattle to that pen over time. And, and then the, the nutrition and the diet part of it is, you know, good fresh feed, uh, appropriate forage to, to grain ratio, uh, access to water. It's a lot of, you know, some of the, some of the boring things, but even, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make the analogy back to human health. We know what it takes to be healthy as a human, right? You know, exercise a little bit, live in a, clean environment and eat a good diet there's other things you can do but if you do those things it's pretty good start and that's the same thing with cattle but you can't do any one of them right so even even vaccines in people if you have overwhelming exposure if you don't have the ability to respond to that vaccine which i think some of the stuff that brian mentioned the body has to build immunity which immunity needs building blocks, right? You gotta have the nutrition, you gotta have, and and Philip, as you think about some of those cattle when they first come in, that nutrition the first few weeks is is pretty critical. Yeah, really is, Brad, because you think those those cattle are coming in and they've been off feed for, you know, one, two, maybe three days or more, and, you know, they're dehydrated if they've been shipped a long time, and their intake will that first week or so will be less than half of what it should be. And so those building blocks you're talking about are really the protein, the amino acids to build those antibodies to, to fight off that infection or, or whatever. And those cattle are not getting enough. So they're having to mobilize muscle tissue or, or other protein in the body to get those amino acids to, to do that. And so they're at a disadvantage in that situation. So it's more than just vaccines to put together a health program. And I think that's a interesting study. We'll put a link in the show notes, Bob, to that study so people can read it. And if they've got questions, they can you can certainly follow up with us. But I wanted to get to our last listener question. And in this question, he talks about having a relatively small herd, starting it and growing it. And then some of the heifers have fallen out of the herd, which we see with first calf heifers. They have their first calf. They lose some weight. They don't get bred back. And now he's got fewer animals on his operation than desired. And his debate here is, I don't really want to go get more cows at this point economically, but should I consider leasing out part of that grassland? And Dustin, we wanted to get your thoughts on this. So initial thought of leasing cows, I like that idea as, a, as an alternate as opposed to going probably maybe going borrowing some money from the bank to 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 buy those some buy some cows you know there's just a few things that come when you're thinking about leasing that come to the top of my mind is you know trying to think of a, a fair or an equitable leasing arrangement and some some things to think about through that would be uh number one would be what are all the expenses you know and, and then once you've identified all those direct expenses who's going to cover those expenses is it going to be the the owner or is it going to be the leasee so that would be the first thing to think about second thing is to think about all the opportunity costs don't forget those costs 
some of those hidden costs because those are going to be you know unpaid family labor make sure you include that also and then the third thing is how are you going to allocate each of those costs to the parties is you know 30 percent of these costs going to be borne by the leasee and 70 percent by the owner or vice versa then on the revenue side you know you know is that 70 percent going to revenue going to be go back to the owner or vice versa so those are just a few thoughts to come to mind and to top of my mind to think through what is nice there are resources available so one does not have to start from scratch when thinking through this there are uh, agmanager.info or other land-grant universities there are spreadsheets where you can type in your numbers to, to think through those things and in fact, if you go to agmanager.info, there we have a couple resources. Uh, one's a very detailed spreadsheet and accompanying PDF document, or we've got a simplified version of that spreadsheet. Uh, we will put both of those in the show notes uh, those for those listeners that are thinking about about this. Yeah, I appreciate you. And, and you've got a lot of good areas there to think about. And as you're talking, I'm going unpaid family labor. Is there another kind of family labor? <laughs> is it, is it, isn't that the only category? You said it like it was a distinction. Well, I think sometimes people do pay themselves by taking out money for groceries or for other expenses. Hey, hey now, I don't, I don't think my family will listen to this, but if they do, <laughs> I don't want you to give them any ideas that they should be paid. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about this question, it sounded to me more like a temporary cash flow issue you know i've got some forage available i don't have cows i don't necessarily want to buy cows but my herd is growing and so this isn't my long-term business plan which i think is kind of a an interesting way of looking at it as you know kind of a a short-term plan but i've also seen kind of in a transition situation where you've got an older beef cattle producer who wants to transition maybe out of as much labor but they've still got the land purchase and then you've got a young producer who has the ability to do labor and but doesn't have the resources to just cow calf is a fixed cost high enterprise you've got land cost you've got cattle costs and i've seen it work as a transition and and so you know over many years the, the cows kind of transition to the younger person over times but i and i but i'm not privy to exactly what the negotiated agreement was but i've seen some pretty good win-win situations that seem to fit both the 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 cow and land owner and then transitioning to a new owner over several years. So I, I see it, the, this question is more like a temporary leasing cows as a stopgap in a, for a year or two or a transition. What, how, how do you address those, Dustin? Well, I guess my first question as you were, were commenting on that, is this, was this listener question just to lease or is it lease to own? I guess I was thinking lease to eventually own, but maybe not. It could be either way. Yeah, it wasn't clear in the question if that was lease or lease to own, but but you could do, explore both options. You could explore both options would be yeah. Yep. And I think and I think one of the advantages using the forage in an efficient manner as you go forward, this this allows you to use your forage and maybe you don't have to have that many cows next year, depending on the year. And we've talked a lot about how your forage supply can vary year to year. It's hard to vary your cow inventory tremendously. But the lease gives you that option, right? Maybe this year I'll take a few more, take a few less next year. Whatever, if you do lease, lease to own, don't lease, spend the time up front thinking through all these costs, incomes, including coal cattle income, get everything documented because if something happens down the line, you need to terminate it, it's already there, it's in writing, and it's a lot easier to go through. 
That is excellent advice because getting it, getting your expectations set up beforehand and getting them written down ensures that you've got a little more accurate communication. So we've appreciated you joining us today and we appreciate those listener questions. Keep sending those in. You can send them to us. You can contact us at the underscore BCI on Twitter or at bci at ksu.edu.